0: Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This is episode 77. Thank you for joining me. This time we're going to talk about, well, an adventure I had out west that involved my van breaking down. We're also going to talk about a tale from the road in which I found my van in a cemetery, a separate but related story, how a VSR can equal extra battery capacity, and a product review of Harvest Host. Thank you for joining me once again. I'm going to dive right into it because this is such a long story and there's so much to it. First of note here, for the gearheads among you, this will seem like the simplest, silliest thing ever, and for those of you who aren't terribly technical, this will sound super technical, and I apologize, but I urge you to keep listening because there is a message in here that applies to everybody, I think. Here's the tale. It's, it's sort of a tech talk from the road. I drove out west over the last two weeks, I was visiting Western Auroras, and I live in Chicago, so driving out west I take mostly I-80. And in the US, the geography is such that as you travel west in the middle of the country, you are gradually going uphill. It causes a noticeable effect on gas mileage, and if it's super windy, which it often is, it can really make driving a bit of a challenge especially in a van and so i normally notice a little bit of resistance as i'm driving west and it's not a concern but on this trip it got to be a concern because i found that my van had no power like no power i couldn't keep up with the speed limit even At first, I thought maybe I had put in the wrong gas. In the Midwest, especially the Western Midwest, gas is different than the rest of the country. You can get gas with ethanol, gas without ethanol, gas with a lot of ethanol, and gas with just a little bit more ethanol than the rest of the country, the E15 stuff. And I thought I had put in some E15, which is not recommended for my vehicle. But it would have explained a loss of power. So once I figured out that that must be what was causing the problem, I pulled over and got some known good gas, I actually bought some premium fuel to kind of dilute the extra ethanol I thought was in the tank, and got a cup of coffee, and that process took 10-15 minutes, got back on the road, and boom! Van was driving as normal, and I thought to myself, boy, what a clever boy I am, I figured this problem out, and I'm all good. And I kept that smug attitude for about two more hours until I got to the steeper parts of western Nebraska heading into Colorado, and the cruise control shut off, and the van started decelerating. And I was like, hmm, okay. So I stepped on the gas, and very sluggishly, the van crawled back up to 50 miles an hour and then wouldn't move. Now, the speed limits out there are 75 or 80 miles an hour, depending on what state you're in. Doing 50 on a highway where people are traveling that fast is not safe and certainly not comfortable. So I knew at that point that I had a problem with the van. Now, did the check engine light come on? No, and that's an important part of the story. My van had broken in a very serious way, and yet there was no check engine light. So what do you do? Well, I'm at the beginning of a large trip here, so I have to make a decision whether I'm going to continue that trip or not. Now, as it happened, I had an appointment in Denver that I had to keep. That was without question. Even if I had to park the van and rent a car or fly or whatever, I had to make that appointment. And I was maybe three or four hours away at that point. And so I decided that, well, I'm going to try to limp along and make it to Denver. So I turned the car off for 10 minutes, turned it back on, and again, it ran fine. So at this point, I knew that my gas theory was garbage. But there was no check engine light. And my code scanner that I have in the dashboard, which is a Scan Gauge 2, found no codes. So basically, all the computers in my van were telling me everything's fine. Except that driving it, I knew everything was not fine. So I got to Denver, and here is what I did. I made an appointment with a Nissan dealer in Grand Junction, Colorado. Now, if you're familiar with Colorado, Denver is in the middle, but towards the east. It's east of the Rockies and Grand Junction is to the west, west of the Rockies. That meant that I had the Rockies, the tallest mountains in the country, in between me and my appointment to get the van looked at. Folks commented that this may not have been the wisest decision, but the other thing I did was I bought a better code scanner. Now, sidebar here, all modern cars have these plugs in the dashboard that you can plug a reader into and then find out all kinds of things about your engine. I mean, it's kind of amazing how much data is in there. All those little computers in your engine are actually storing data and they can be read by scanners, but not all scanners are created equal. I used to have a really cheap scanner that couldn't do very much at all. The ScanGauge 2 can read engine codes and reset them, which is great but as I learned, it can't read transmission codes. It seems that you have to buy a more expensive scanner to read codes that are made especially for the vehicle. And so I went to AutoZone, they let me borrow their scanner, which read all the codes and gave me a nice printout and told me exactly what all the codes were. And I spent $269 and bought that same scanner. Now that seems extravagant, But I'm very, very glad I did that because it gave me information, and this will come into play in a minute a bit about the scanner I bought. It's an ANOVA 3170RS. It's not the kind that sits on the dash. It's the kind that you plug in and then you can do all kinds of tests and it'll do real-time tests too. For example, it can graph your tachometer over time. So if you have a rough idle, you can see how your tach is doing and use that data. It also pairs with an app on the cell phone that it will read the code and then tell you what to do about it. Now, this app, is designed that you will buy parts from them, so I don't trust it all that much. But I know just enough about cars that I know I want to know the information about what the engine is telling itself, or me, before I go talk to the dealer. And that was the situation I wanted to be in. Now, the codes that this thing gave me were three different transmission codes that indicated all kinds of different things. And then one code saying that my brake light switch was bad. Now, the brake light switch, is it's a little switch that when you step on the brake pedal, the brake lights go on. And it also informs some sensors in the vehicle that the brake is depressed. That's all it does. It's very simple. And I knew it was sticky. I knew it was having a problem. It's one of the most common problems in NV200s. And in uh, just a side note, if you have an NV200 and you keep getting your anti-lock brake light coming on, like something's wrong, it's. Probably your brake switch because the sensors are detecting that the brake lights are on but the brake pedal isn't depressed or something like that. But anyway, change your brake switch out if you're having any of those problems. To recap, I am in Denver. I have a code scanner. I have codes. I have an appointment in Grand Junction on the other side of the Rockies with a Nissan dealer that I asked if they could handle commercial vehicles and they said yes. Whether wise or not, I decide to drive across the Rockies with a van that is acting funny. And as it happens, the van performs perfectly, perfectly going over the Rockies. Now I did take it easy, I didn't push it, I didn't even drive the speed limit. I just went along at a decent clip over the mountains and everything was fine. Now I probably could have said at that point, I'm done, everything's fine. But I had those codes and what I did the night before was I researched the codes and what they all meant. And if you had looked at any one code, you would have had a course of action that would have been incomplete. I had to read all three codes and find common elements. And that common element that I found was transmission fluid. My van had over 150,000 miles on it at this point, and it had never had a transmission fluid change, because you don't change the fluid in these. In fact, there isn't even a drain. It's supposed to be permanent, you're not supposed to change the transmission fluid. But what I have learned over time is that once these vehicles get to high mileage, it is a good idea to completely replace the transmission fluid. This is for a CVT. It is completely different for a normal transmission, and you'll find all kinds of information about how you should never transfer transmission fluid or only change it in small increments or whatever. So if you've got a normal transmission, don't do what I'm doing here. But if you have a Nissan NV200 with that CVT, yeah, change the transmission fluid. But I had to deal with the dealer. So I get to the dealer, show them the codes, and they're scratching their heads because it turns out that they are not. An NV200 dealer, they don't know anything about these vehicles. They know about Nissans, and that engine is the same engine as is in a bunch of Nissans, so that's not a problem. But they actually came back to me and said that all of my problems were caused by the brake light switch. And I don't believe them. I still don't believe them. It's been like this since I've had the vehicle. I was like, all right, I'm going to let them replace that. But I'm also going to demand that they change the transmission fluid. The dealer did not recommend this. I recommended it because of the research I had done. I had to assume that I knew more than they did based on my research on the internet. And we know how dangerous that is. But it worked. I was right. And I'm convinced I was right. The vehicle turned back to a brand new vehicle as soon as that transmission fluid was changed. So my lesson from that is, if you have an older vehicle... Get a good code scanner, spend some time Googling and doing YouTube stuff and learning about it. And again, that comes with all kinds of caveats because there's all kinds of bogus information out there, but basically inform yourself as much as you can and then go and negotiate. And in the case of the NV200, if it has high miles, just replace the transmission fluid. It's like 350 bucks. It's not super cheap, but it's not super expensive. And boy, it really made it seem like a new vehicle. But wait, there's more, because coming back from this trip after having a harrowing experience in the desert, which I will get to later in this podcast, the van broke down again. And you might be thinking, well, Jeff, you don't know so much now, do you? Oh, but wait, no, this broke down in a completely different way. I was driving in Kansas, just west of Colby, Kansas. Sorry, John Denver, but I did go south of Colby, Kansas, just in your honor, and because that's the way I-80 goes. No, it, the, the thing started bucking and going, and it was like the tachometer was all over the place, and it wasn't drivable. Unfortunately, this happened right by an exit. I pulled off, pulled over to the shoulder, put it in park, and watched the tachometer jump all over the place like it was dancing. I can't drive home like this. And, of course, it's Saturday on Memorial Day weekend. But I had the code scanner. Da-da-da! So I took the code scanner out and plugged it in, and lo and behold, even though there was no check engine light on, it showed me that the MAF sensor had gone bad. Now, this is great news for me, because on the NV200, this part is two screws to replace. And I went to a local O'Reilly's. They had the part. It was ridiculously expensive. You can get this part for as little as 25 bucks online. They wanted 135 bucks for it, but given my situation, I paid it, installed it. And now the van runs fine, but I wouldn't have known to do that without the code scanner. But before I installed it, I stopped at Culver's and had a lovely fish sandwich. And believe it or not, that is an important part of this process. For those gearheads out there who said I should have just cleaned the MAF sensor, yeah I could have done that. I could have just cleaned it, but it was Saturday on Memorial Day weekend, the van was acting up and I was trying to get home. So I didn't want to just clean it and to see if it would work. Sure, it would have saved me a lot of money if it did work. But if it didn't work, and if it decided not to work late Saturday night, I would have been super stuck and it would have cost me a lot more than that $135 to fix it. So, So that was my experience. Lesson here is if you have an older vehicle, definitely consider getting a code scanner and learning how to use it. They're also super useful if you want to buy a vehicle. You can take this code scanner to any vehicle that's of any recent age, plug it in, do a scan of all systems, and you will know all about the engine and what codes have been thrown. And you will know if someone has reset the codes recently, which is a sign that maybe there's something wrong and they're trying to hide it. So I'll have links in the show notes to code scanners and all that kind of stuff. But that was my tale. I'm glad to be back home and Pagurus is now the mighty Pagurus because it survived all that and my cemetery tale, which is coming up. Tech talk. As if that wasn't enough tech talk, we're going to talk about something totally different now. Uh, VSRs, VSRs, voltage-sensitive relays. This is a little black box that's normally installed under the hood that connects the starter battery to the leisure battery, that is the one in the back, and allows your alternator to charge the leisure battery without risk of draining your starter battery. Because that's the risk. If you just hook up your back battery to the front battery, well, they're basically one battery at that point, and if you leave the fridge and lights on in the back, you can kill your starter battery, and then you can't move, and that's bad. The VSR will sense the voltage on the starter battery, and if it gets below a certain point, it will sever the connection, thus preserving your starter battery. But here is something that I have realized over time of using mine. It gives you extra battery capacity, and this is how. And And, and I'm not saying this is definitely, this is, this is something that you should go after or take into any of your calculations, but it is something that I noticed that is interesting. Let's say you drive for five hours. Your VSR has been open all day and your batteries are fully charged or close to it, and then you turn the engine off. Now, these little black boxes have a red light on them that show when the circuits open. If you open your hood after you have driven for a while, you will notice that that red light is still on, even though your engine's not running. Why? It's because the voltage of your starter battery is high enough that the voltage sensing relay says it's fine to leave the connection open. But again, that means you have combined the two batteries and you have one big battery, which means that, in essence, your rear battery also has the capacity of the front battery at that time, which is a good thing in some cases. You've got more voltage and more amperage to work with, but you're still protected. It's still going to shut off that connection when the starter battery gets below a certain voltage. So it's like having a little bit of an extra battery, having this VSR in there. Now, again, I don't think you should plan your build based on that. But what I have noticed is that after I've been driving a long time, I seem to have more battery capacity and it dawned on me it's because the starter battery is actually giving some energy to the back. Now, there are arguments that this is a bad thing. And if you think it's a bad thing, and this probably isn't a bad idea anyway, you can install a switch to manually turn the VSR on or off. Another time when you would want this switch is if you also had solar so that you could force the solar to charge the batteries rather than the alternator. Anyway, just an interesting thing I noticed that if you do have a VSR, you might find yourself with more capacity than you imagined, and that's why. Product Review Harvest Host. Let's talk about Harvest Host. Harvest Host is a service by which you pay a yearly fee and it gives you access to all kinds of places to boondock. And right now they advertise that if you sign up for Harvest Host, they will give you access to 2,363 wineries, breweries, farms, and more. And the way it works is that you sign up and then you call the place that you want to stay and say, hey, do you have space? I want to come. And they say yes and you pull in and you can spend the night boondocking in most cases, no facilities whatsoever, for free. And some of them are kind of fun. There's an alligator ranch, there's wildlife rescue services, a whole bunch of wineries. And they're all over the country. I mean, there's fewer out west because there's fewer people out west, but it also isn't a problem to park out west. Where this would be super useful is in the east coast where it's harder to find places to park. If you're a planning kind of person, like you want to be able to plan ahead of time and know where you're gonna stay, This would check that box for you because you would have a destination and a place to stay. And so it sounds great. And it's not that expensive, although they did just raise the rates. It's $99 a year. Now there's a coupon. If you use the coupon June, J-U-N-E, you get 15% off of that. That's not an affiliate code. It's just something that's on their website. They have an app. You can search for places and everything. However. I do not subscribe to Harvest Host, and it is for the following reasons. Number one, I am not a planner, (laughs) I like flexibility. It's not a good thing for spontaneous things. Like if it's six o'clock at night and you're looking for a place to stay, Harvest Host doesn't really work that way because you're dealing with businesses, and they have business hours, and you have to call to arrange to be there. They do not have an online reservation system. So if it's 6 o'clock at night and you want to go to a winery, well, you have to call them and they may have closed for the day and then, well, you can't stay there. So that's one drawback. Another drawback is that these places tend to be like bed and breakfasts in that you are supposed to interact with the hosts. That's part of the experience. You would pull in, get set up, go meet the hosts, have a conversation with them, tour the winery, and then you're expected to buy some wine. That's the other part of this. It's $99 a year, but there is an unwritten expectation that you will buy whatever they're selling or somehow give them some revenue because that is what's in it for the hosts. They pay a fee to be listed and they do so in hopes of attracting more business. And they're not getting any money from you just staying there. And here's the real kicker. They've got some restrictions that are a problem. First off, you can only spend one night. It would be rare that you would be allowed to spend two nights, and the invitation must come from the host. Second, and this is the big one, they're picky about what vehicles you can have. According to their FAQ, they say at the beginning, Oh, you can have any vehicle you want, except... Well, in fact, I'm just going to read it to you. All classes of RVs are allowed Class A, Class B, and Class C, including motorhomes, fifth wheel trailers, travel trailers, toy haulers, camper vans, uh-huh, truck campers, and schoolies. Vehicles towed behind RVs are also allowed. <clears throat> and then it says traditional pop up campers, otherwise known as folding camping trailers, where the middle and sides of the trailer pop up and out, are prohibited. Also prohibited. Tents, such as ground tents, or car rooftop tents, sleeping in cars, trucks, or minivans, or Jeeps, bikes, ATVs, etc. And then it goes on into even more depth, is that they allow hybrid travel trailers where just the bed pops out. And the camper van can be allowed where the bed area is at the top of the van, but the rest of the van has to have... Anyway, there are lots of little weird things, and... One of those weird things is you can't cook. Well, you can cook in your van, but you can't cook outside your van. Also, you are not allowed to basically do anything outside your van. You, there's no dump stations. Everything in, has to happen in your van. You can't dump gray water on the ground. Nothing. So you have to be completely self-contained and meet their rather odd requirements. I mean, For example, I don't know the difference between a minivan and a camper van. I I don't know what that definitionally means. If I pulled up in a Toyota Sienna that had a bed and a toilet and a sink in it, what is that? Is it a minivan? Is my NV200 a minivan? I mean, I feel like this would be up to individual interpretation, usually at the worst possible moment. That's my opinion of Harvest hosts. I would love to hear if you've had any experience with them. I don't think it's a bad thing. I just think it's for certain kinds of people, and I tend not to be one of them. Tales from the road. So, after crossing the Rockies and then the entire state of Utah and then the entire state of Nevada, I found myself in Hawthorne, Nevada, which was my destination. Hawthorne is a very strange town in and of itself, and it's worthy of a visit all by itself. It's a town, I, I'm amazed they don't call it Boomtown, because it is a town surrounded by bombs. You should, I'll have a link in the show notes for this, but you should look at it from the air. There's this little town, and then for miles around it in the desert, it's bombs. It's basically the nation's depository for ordnance, and they have an ordnance museum there. So that's fun. (laughs) That's nothing to do with this story, though. Hawthorne, Nevada is also the jumping-off point for visiting Aurora, Nevada, Now, you have to be careful here, and I'm glad I did research on this. Some mapping programs will send you to Aurora from Bodie, California. And if you just look at a flat map, that absolutely makes the most sense. The roads are simpler, and that's the way you should go. But I happen to know from research that the road from Bodie to Aurora, Nevada is impassable for any vehicle that's not a high-clearance four-wheel drive. It's really bad. I'm willing to take some chances, but I would not attempt that. I know that the road from Hawthorne, which is a little bit longer, is the same road that the Borealis Mining Company uses, and they have to maintain it to get their mining equipment in and out. So I know it's going to be better. Now, I visited this in 2019, so I was pretty familiar with the road, and I had no problems at all getting there in 2019. I was very confident that the van, (laughs) despite its recent problems, was going to have no problem getting up to Aurora, Nevada. Well, two years is a long time in the desert, and it turns out that the road was not in great shape. At all. In fact, something annoying and tragic had happened not long before I got there is that it had rained. And while the rain didn't damage the road too much because it's a very well-built road for the mining equipment, some yahoo in a big pickup truck decided to go mudding up there and basically destroyed 20 miles of road all the way up to Aurora Cemetery in Aurora, Nevada. And and by mudding, I mean they created these huge ruts in this otherwise decent road, and the ruts were 6 inches deep and created hills on either side of them about 6 inches high. Well, the ground clearance in my NV200 is about 6.2 inches so you can see that I had to struggle navigating around these ruts. And my van's got higher ground clearance than many of the smaller vans. A Metris has a four-inch ground clearance. It would have had a super hard time here. But I was committed. I had just driven about 2,000 miles to have this experience. I was going to get there. So I fought my way down this rough road and then finally saw the turnoff for, this is actually a very nicely printed sign by the mine that says Aurora Cemetery. And then I looked and I was very confused because the road that I remembered was not the road that I saw. In fact, the road that I saw kind of wasn't there. It was just rocks. It was an area where there were no plants and rocks. That was the road. And it was at a 30 degree incline. And I wasn't sure the van was going to make it. My van's front wheel drive. Front wheel drive vehicles have a really hard time with loose gravel on uphill climbs. That is their biggest weakness. But I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And then if it doesn't work, I will actually go up in reverse because that is the way to defeat this problem. However, the van did buck and chuck and muck and every other word that rhymes with that its way up the hill until I finally got over this hill and was in Aurora. Now, this is a ghost town. There's nothing there other than grave sites and a few little pieces of buildings. And I didn't recognize where I was. Now, I've been studying Aurora for a couple of years. I was rather bewildered that I didn't know where I was. And it was because the road had changed so much in those two years. But I had a general idea of where I was supposed to be. And again, there's no cell phone service here, so I couldn't do any more Googling. And I made my way gradually down towards Esmeralda Gulch, which is where Aurora is. And then I saw the tombstones and I was like, okay, there's the cemetery that orients me. I know where I am, but I couldn't find the road. Like it's really hard to explain. I was in this place covered with pinyon pines. Pinion pines are very short pine trees. They're maybe 20 feet tall at the tallest and uh, lots of gravestones and markers and lots of rocks and no clear way. And before long, I realized that I was literally driving in the cemetery. I had somehow gotten my van in the cemetery to the point at which I was dodging tombstones. This is bad. This is not where I want to be. I don't want to be driving in a cemetery. And while it's not quite the same as driving in a grass-covered cemetery where I was in danger of damaging anything, I mean, so long as I didn't hit a tombstone, nothing was going to be damaged. It's just dirt and rocks. That's still pretty disrespectful, and it's not a place where I wanted to find myself. And then I got stuck. Remember that ground clearance problem? Well, I somehow managed to get myself between two trees with big rocks in front of my wheels and behind my wheels. And there I was in Aurora, Nevada, ghost town in the cemetery in a van stuck 20 miles from pavement with no cell phone service. And then I died. The end. Well, no, obviously I didn't, because here I am right now. No, what did I do? Well, I I got myself out. I mean, I'm fairly self-reliant, and I was able to figure out where the problems were and then to deal with them one by one. I removed the rocks, I made myself a clear path out, I walked around a lot and measured and made sure the van could fit, and then finally got on the road proper. And then everything was fine, until my drone crashed, but that's another story, so... Lesson from this story, Uh, just because something was in good shape two years ago doesn't mean it is now. That's one lesson. Another lesson is that these vans, these little vans are not meant for off-roading, and I knew that to begin with. But the third lesson, and the one I'm going to take, is that, well, perseverance will actually get you what you want. And I was committed to getting to that ghost town, and I did, even though I regret driving in the cemetery. Sorry, guys. I did accomplish my mission and I got home and the van is fine. And I got great footage of Aurora Cemetery, which you can see in the YouTube video that we'll be following as soon as I get done editing it. A place to visit. I found this great spot, this amazing spot that I'm going to share with you. And I'm afraid it's going to get overrun and that's okay. Because what good is a secret garden if you can't share it with somebody? Route 6. Route 6 is a U.S. highway that travels from Provincetown, Massachusetts, all the way to California, goes right through Utah, right through Nevada, and it's where I spent an awful lot of my time on this trip. Right at the Utah-Nevada border on U.S. 6 is a place called Sacramento Pass Recreation Area. It is right at the entrance of Great Basin National Park, which is a national park that does not get enough visitors. It is probably the only one. So if you're looking for a national park to do, consider Great Basin National Park. And this is a BLM site that they have totally developed and made just really nice. Every spot has an amazing view of the mountains, has a big steel canopy and picnic table on a cement platform, so you're in cover, in shade, has a cooking pit and a very flat area to park. And it's free. You can stay there for two weeks. You don't even need to register. You can just pull in, park, and you're home for two weeks. I even managed to get some cell phone service there. <laughs> I looked for the tower. I don't know where it is. I don't know why there'd be a tower there. But with AT&T, I was able to get a little bit of cell phone service. This place is beautiful. It even has a fishing pond. Yes, a fishing pond in the middle of the desert. I think that is probably the most amazing part of this place. It also has vault toilets and a dumpster for dealing with trash. It's one drawback, if you can call it a drawback, is that it does not have a fresh water source. So you will have to bring in whatever fresh water you're going to use. But seriously, if you are traveling out west and looking for some place just nice and quiet and serene to visit for free, definitely check out the Sacramento Pass Recreation Area. I'll have a link in the show notes, and I will go back. One note, though. Make sure that you get there early and claim your spot, because I got there at six and had my choice of spots. By seven, they were all taken, and this was on a weeknight. Also, one other note, there's a lot to do there without having to go too far. There's a ghost town across the street with actual buildings in it. There's all kinds of hiking trails, and you're encouraged to bring your horse. That's right. This is an equestrian campsite. Resource recommendation. Resource recommendation. James W. Lowen is an author and professor. He taught at UVM for decades and has written a couple of uh, important books, I would say. One is called Lies My Teacher Told Me. It was a pretty famous, popular book a few decades ago. But he wrote another one that I want to mention specifically for us van life traveling folk. And that is called Lies Across America. This book is 400 pages long, and it deals specifically with those roadside signs you see that say historical marker or an 1867, nothing happened here. Those kind of signs, that's what this book is about. Now, I have long been a proponent of stopping when you see a sign that says historical marker with an arrow on it. I like reading those. I like knowing what happened where I am. I'd like having context of, I am driving on this road that used to be a stagecoach road that was built here because there was a salt flat here because the early settlers needed the salt for their animals and blah, blah, blah. I like knowing that stuff. So I'm a big fan of these historical markers. But if you ever asked yourself who puts them there, like who goes around like saying, oh, we should put an historical marker here. Well, it turns out that basically anyone who wants to does that, and some of the people who want to, want to rewrite history. And I am not a fan of that. And James Lowen's book points out how this was done systematically in certain parts of the country, particularly the South. For example, and I'm not picking on Tennessee here, this is literally just what was there when I opened the book, a sign on the main highway in Henning, Tennessee reads... Fort Pillow, April 12th, 1864. Federal forces captured this important Confederate work, 18 miles west, in 1862. To end depredations committed by the Federal garrison, Forrest, along with a force from his Confederate Cavalry Corps, attacked and captured the fort. Of the garrison of 551 white and Negro troops, 221 were killed. The rest, some wounded, were captured. Okay, so at face value, that's just like a story of what happened. But it leaves out some important facts. For example, the Forrest who is mentioned here is Nathan Bedford Forrest, the founder of the KKK. And while that isn't essential to this particular story, what is is that the reason the casualties were so high is because all the black troops were lined up against the wall and shot which is not mentioned on this plaque and actually might be an important part of the story. So there's a lot of stuff like that out there on these signs, and this book helps you find them and interpret them. Now, history is story. It is his story and often it is written by the victors and in the US we have portions of the population who aren't very happy with the victors. (laughs) So they try to create different stories that may not be accurate. This book helps you figure out what's accurate. So I highly recommend it. There's an audio version available, and I think it might be fun to listen to the chapters that related to where you were driving at the time. But I'll have a link in the show notes. And again, the name of the book is Lies Across America by James W. Loewen. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to this little odd episode. I absolutely appreciate it. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of Helen Keller. A bend in the road is not the end of the road, unless you fail to make the turn.